0: In today's podcast, we're going to be discussing pediatric obesity, and today we have a very special guest filling in for Dr. Dean, Dr. Sara Brundage. She's a pediatric resident who works with me here at UC Davis Children's Hospital, and she has a special interest in pediatric obesity prevention and treatment. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to record this with you.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and help out and talk about this really important topic.
0: So let's get started giving a little background on pediatric obesity, and then we'll get into the really important stuff, which is how to prevent obesity from developing in the first place and how to work on improving weight and obesity-related complications for
1: people who do suffer from obesity. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to stress something you just said. You said people with obesity— And this is what we call people-first language, and it's so important we discuss obesity in this way, especially as medical providers. So often people will say an obese person or an obese child, but people-first language strives to eliminate this weight bias by not labeling the person by their condition and acknowledges it as the disorder that it is.
0: Right. Absolutely. It's a really, really important point. And we know that obesity affects a lot of people. So 42% of adults in the United States were obese, and that was during the period of 2017 to
1: 2018. And for children ages 2 to 19, it's 19.7%, affecting about 14.7 million children and adolescents. We know that the rates of obesity are slightly higher among boys. And we see racial and ethnic disparities, too, with Mexican-Americans and Hispanic youths having the highest rate of obesity, followed by Black youth. So let's talk about how
0: we define obesity in pediatrics specifically.
1: Well, like everything else, we do things a bit differently in pediatrics. Some adults listening may be familiar with the BMI, also known as the Body Mass Index.
0: Right. So the BMI is calculated by a person's weight in kilograms divided by their height
1: in meters squared. Correct. For adults, the BMI cutoffs for weight are based on just the number alone. This is different in pediatrics. We use percentiles for the BMI to define being overweight, and this is relative to other children of the same gender and age.
0: Right. Some of you may remember a recent episode that Dr. Dean and I did on growth, where we talked more about these growth percentiles.
1: So in pediatrics, we identify a BMI between the 5th and 84th percentile as a healthy weight. And BMIs between the 85th and 94th percentile is considered overweight. And then BMIs that are in the 95th percentile or higher is considered obese. And then depending on how high that BMI is above the 95th percentile, we can further break it down into mild, moderate, or severe obesity.
0: So what makes some kids go on to
1: develop obesity and not others? That's a really great question and one we're still learning a lot about, but what we do know is that it's multifactorial. This means that a person's genetics, their environment, development, and behaviors can all influence weight. Right,
0: and that's what makes obesity so complex and so difficult to treat. So just like you mentioned, we know genetics plays a really big role in this. We know if a parent has obesity, their child is 20 to 30 times at an increased risk of having obesity as well.
1: We also know that diet plays a huge role, which we'll get into more later. But I want to highlight the work done by Dr. Hall at the National Institute of Health. He has done extensive research studying the effects of processed versus unprocessed foods on weight. And he has shown that in animals that were fed an ultra-processed diet, as opposed to an unprocessed one, went on to develop significant weight gain. And he compared this to animals that were fed an unprocessed diet, and they actually lost weight. Several studies have replicated this in humans and have similarly shown that ultra-processed foods lead to weight gain.
0: It's easy to, to think about that, but it's it's great that, that it's been shown. And a lot of the, these studies also showed that when you control for the amount of calories that you're taking in, the same thing happened, right? Like the processed food was worse and led to weight gain, and the unprocessed food was better. We also know that the brain is the most important organ in our body for regulating obesity. So some people might think like, well, maybe it's like the liver or like the intestines, right? Because you're digesting your food. But it's actually the brain and specifically an area of the brain called the hypothalamus. And this area gets signals from organs all over the body. And it's signals our body to stimulate hunger or tell us when we're
1: full or tell us our body that it's time to metabolize our food. So for kids, there are some things that put them at increased risk of developing obesity, including things that occur even prenatally, such as maternal obesity, being born too small or too large for gestational age, being formula fed, and rapid weight gain in infancy. There are also some other medical conditions that can cause obesity. These include genetic conditions, as well as medications that can cause excess weight gain. And these include steroids or certain types of steroids, antipsychotics, antidepressants, and antiepileptics.
0: There's a long list of other medical conditions that can co-occur with obesity in children. So this is something to keep in mind and something that your doctor may ask about if your kid has some of these other symptoms, if they're experiencing issues with their weight. We know that weight can increase a child's risk for sleep apnea, unfortunately worsening their quality of sleep and then further exacerbating weight issues since we know that poor sleep can lead to more difficulty with weight loss. And sleep apnea can actually also cause high blood pressure, which excess weight can also cause. So it's kind of this vicious cycle where one makes the other worse, and it makes the other worse. We know that obesity also worsens asthma and makes it more difficult for kids to exercise.
1: Right. And obesity can also cause liver inflammation. This is sometimes referred to as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And obesity can also cause or lead to gallstones, which can be quite painful. Obesity can also lead to elevated cholesterol and blood pressure levels. And it's also associated with a rare increased pressure in the brain. This is called pseudotumor cerebri, which I think now
0: is being referred to as idiopathic intracranial hypertension is the, uh, right. the new
1: phrase. Have you taken care of any kids with this before? I have. I have. And they're just in so much pain. It's really tough to treat.
0: Yeah, they have the worst headache of their life. They have blurry vision a lot of times. And the classic description or, or person that has this, although not always, is like a overweight teenage female. Most typically, at least that's what I've seen. We also know that obesity can cause a lot of musculoskeletal issues, thinking about like flat feet or, um, you know, bone pain or bony defects of the hips or other things. And it can lead to endocrine issues like early puberty and diabetes.
1: And equally important, it can lead to a whole host of psychosocial issues for kids like depression and anxiety and even school avoidance.
0: So by working to address rapid weight gain
1: early, we can prevent some of these common co-occurring conditions. All right. So let's say you're a parent and you have some concerns about your child's weight. Let's say that weight has always been kind of difficult for members of your family. And now in the wake of COVID, which I'm sure we have seen a lot of in our clinics um, and you might be familiar with, is with the lack of PE, Sports practices have been canceled. Your kids have full access to the kitchen and snacks during their Zoom school. And now your school-age child has put on some weight. What can you expect their pediatrician to say when you take them for their well checkup?
0: Right. Well, of course, every provider is going to handle this discussion very differently, and we can't predict the exact conversation that your pediatrician is going to have. But we can talk about some effective strategies at addressing pediatric obesity. And I also want to say that if you have concerns about your child's weight, but your provider did not address this during the visit, absolutely bring it up with them and maybe even schedule an appointment specifically to
1: discuss weight. Often, I will request a family to come back for a visit to just focus on weight because there really is a lot to discuss. If I see that a child's BMI is entering the obesity range or even if it's just diverging from their usual curve, for example, if last year I saw a child and their BMI was in the 50th percentile and now it's been a year and their BMI has shot up to the 80th or higher percentile, I will usually ask families, are you okay with me spending some time talking about weight today?
0: Right. And if the family is open to discussing weight, you really want to work to meet families where they are. So elicit their concerns about their weight, um, what their knowledge is around obesity, and what they think might be contributing at home. And you want to discuss their values. So what are their strengths when it comes to lifestyle? And ask them to offer some of the possible solutions.
1: Yeah, a strategy many providers may take is something called motivational interviewing. This is a really collaborative conversation style for honing in and strengthening a person's own motivation and commitment to change. This is something that we've been trained on and have been working on since medical school.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's still a work in progress, for sure. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: So if a child does have obesity, your physician may recommend some blood testing to evaluate for some of those associated conditions that we discussed earlier. The initial labs usually that are recommended are a fasting lipid panel. So this looks for high cholesterol or elevated triglycerides, a glucose or a hemoglobin A1C. This looks for impaired blood sugar or diabetes. And then an ALT, which looks for liver inflammation and looks for that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that we talked about. Some providers will also get a vitamin D level. We know that vitamin D can be pulled into um, adipose or fat cells and therefore would be low in your blood. And so if it was, it would warrant some replacement with a supplement.
1: So depending on what these labs show, your physician may order other tests or even refer your child to a specialist for further care. Screening with labs is is important because we know that 23% of youth with obesity have impaired fasting blood sugars or an impaired ability for the body to regulate the sugar in the blood. And 12% of adolescents with obesity and abnormal hemoglobin A1Cs will progress to full diabetes in a year.
0: Right. So, that just makes it even more important that you stay on those scheduled well-child checks or even schedule those additional visits for obesity-specific visits. So, now that we've talked a lot about risk factors and diagnosis and the associated conditions and screening, let's get into the meat, or should I say veggies, of the issue, which is how to prevent and treat obesity.
1: Yes, let's do it. So the number one way to treat and prevent obesity is through nutrition and lifestyle habits. So this means healthy eating choices and plenty of physical exercise every day.
0: And when it comes to nutrition, the recommended daily portions for each food group depend on your kid's age, weight, and what their sex was assigned at birth. So we like to encourage families to check out a really great website called myplate.gov, and we've linked it on the blog. And this has specific recommendations and tools to develop a customized meal plan for your individual child. And there's fun games and recipes. So it's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's really a great website. So just to briefly outline what your plate should look like at any given meal It should include a portion of vegetables or fruit, and this can look like two cups of fresh leafy greens or one cup of cooked greens or one piece of whole fruit. It should include a portion of grains that should be no larger than your child's fist, a portion of protein or meat that should be no larger than your child's palm, and a portion of dairy or a dairy alternative. So, for example, a cup of milk. And it's really important to remember that veggies should show up at every meal, not just dinner time. And we know this can be a lot to remember for families. That's why going
0: to a website or having some visual aids that you print out and post on your fridge can be helpful. Your doctor may also refer you to a dietitian who can look at a more detailed history of what typical meals look like for your family and help you make some healthy adjustments for what you're already doing.
1: So something I really like to do in clinic is to encourage my patients and their families to try and eat through the rainbow, um, through veggies and fruits every week. So for the color red, they can opt for an apple or for orange, they can grab a handful of carrots or an orange, it's namesake. But it's a really fun and easy way to just get started on these healthy lifestyle changes. I love that. That's a really fun
0: thing. And also notice that these recommendations do not include sugary drinks or sweets. It's important to limit these as much as possible just for those special occasions, birthday parties. And if you have a picky eater, which I know many parents do, um, I encourage you to check out our episodes on picky eating. Um, But what I will say is that if I have a kid in my office who doesn't like vegetables, I ask them if there are any veggies that they do like. Usually it's like Broccoli or green beans. I feel like those are the two. And I ask them what they enjoy about it. And then when I ask them about others that they say they don't like, I tell them that you need to try a veggie 10 times in different ways, at least a bite before you can truly decide if you like it or not. So I have them put the veggie up on the fridge and then they make their little tallies. And if they really try it 10 times and they don't like it still, then I say, okay, you can add that to the foods that you don't like, but you have to keep trying. And so I would encourage parents to motivate their kids to be adventurous
1: veggie eaters. I love that. And it builds resilience. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for exercise, ideally kids should get at least 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity per day. And this is for children six years of age or older and what does moderate to vigorous even mean? So basically, it means activity during which it'd be really difficult or even impossible to hold a conversation. And children younger than six need even more exercise up to three hours per day. But really, just doing anything active per day is a great start. So research has showed that even 10-minute bursts throughout the day and like these small increments at a time can be effective in managing weight.
0: And most importantly, the goal of lifestyle modifications is to develop healthy eating and physical activity habits that the children can carry with them for the rest of their lives versus like dieting or restricting calories to get to a number on the scale. So in general, I recommend that families implement these modifications when their child's weight is more than 10% of a healthy weight for their age. And if a child really is trying to lose weight, we do not want it to be more than one to two pounds per week.
1: And it should really be under the guidance of your physician. Some other healthy lifestyle habits include eating breakfast, having a healthy snack on hand. So your kiddo reaches for a baggie of veggies versus a baggie of Takis or Doritos. Uh, Managing portion sizes, eating as a family, and keeping mealtimes media-free. So putting the phones away
0: and turning off the TV. Absolutely. I think that the family meals is one that like I really want to highlight because when we look at the data about weight in kids, families that do eat dinner together every night as a family tend to have healthier weights. And so this is something that's so easy and so good for everyone in the family that that's one that I really encourage families to do. So, after implementing these new lifestyle modifications, if you're not seeing any changes in your child's BMI after 3 to 6 months, talk to your doctor about a structured weight management program or even the option of starting a medication. There are medications that are approved for weight loss in older children. These include liraglutide, orlistat, and quisimia, which I know I'm saying wrong, but the cue really throws me off. <laughs> These are approved <laughs> for kids over 12 years old. And then there's phenteramine, which is approved for kids over 16
1: some teens may also be eligible for weight loss surgery. This is known as adolescent bariatric surgery or commonly known as gastric bypass. And this applies to children ages 13 to 19 or 18 years old. It's minimally invasive and it affects hunger and satiety or that feeling of being full by decreasing the size of the stomach. And this is what ultimately leads to weight loss. So Basically, as a person loses weight, the hormones that are in charge of feeling hungry and full change over time. And this is what we call the set point theory. So our body, everybody's body at baseline is set to defend a certain weight, even if that weight is higher. And as a person loses weight, that set point goes down. And that's what decreases those I'm hungry hormones over time.
0: Right. So, of course, parents may be like, what? My teenager having a big surgery for weight? That sounds insane. Um, And I hear you. But who would be eligible for this surgery?
1: Right. So, teenagers with a BMI of 35 or higher or at a certain percentage above that 95th percentile we talked about, that's that obesity classification, in addition to having a comorbid condition, also something we talked about, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, sleep apnea, so on, are eligible. Or teenagers with a BMI of 40 or higher or at an even higher percentage above that 95th percentile are also eligible. And these kiddos do not need to have a clinically significant comorbid condition to qualify, but I will say it is commonly present. Essentially, deciding on when surgery is a good idea or when it's indicated comes down to BMI, comorbid conditions, and quality of life.
0: Right. And really, the surgery is evidence-based. It's safe, and it's a really effective way for teens to lose weight if they haven't had success with the other things that we've talked about. Research shows that adolescence may actually be the best time to have the surgery because not only does it help with weight loss, but it prevents those lifelong complications from developing, and it positively affects their sense of well-being and their mental health.
1: And I think it's also really important to emphasize that this is a big decision for families, and it involves a lot of shared decision-making between the patient or the adolescent, the patient's family, the provider, and additional multidisciplinary specialists to understand the risks of having the surgery versus not having it.
0: Right. And we always, always, always want to stress the importance of those diet and lifestyle modifications we discuss, even if we're using medications or surgical interventions at the
1: same time. Definitely. We would like to thank Dr. Dennis Stein, a pediatric endocrinologist at UC Davis, and Alexander Nella, a registered dietitian and physician assistant at UC Davis, for reviewing today's episode. Although Dr. Lena and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. Awesome. Let's
0: summarize today's topic on pediatric obesity.
1: Obesity is a very common affecting nearly 20% of kids ages 2 to 19. What causes a child to develop obesity is multifactorial and it's influenced
0: by genetics, their environment, their development and their own behavior.
1: There are many other medical conditions that can occur as a result of obesity, including sleep apnea, liver disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, musculoskeletal problems, depression and anxiety.
0: The great news is that there's a lot we can do to prevent obesity and effectively manage it if it has occurred, especially when it comes to kids.
1: Absolutely. We discuss diet and lifestyle strategies, including striving for unprocessed foods, whole veggies and fruits with each meal.
0: And one hour of vigorous exercise daily or whatever
1: you can do. Just get up and get sweaty. (laughs) And for people with more significant obesity, they may benefit from a structured weight loss program, medication or bariatric surgery. So because
0: Dr. Dean is not here, I feel obligated to do his silly dad joke at the end of the episode. <laughs> so what do you call someone who can't stick with a diet?
1: What? A deserter. <laughs> that one really cracks me up.
0: <laughs> Get it? Like dessert. It's a good one. It's, a good, it's kind of a good one. I mean, I I guarantee you if you look back at the last 10 episodes, it's way better than Probably. any of his jokes. I can believe it.